0: I've been thinking about this all this week with Good Friday Service. I don't think we capture the emotion of that, do we? Friday night, complete, utter, in our minds, failure. God can't bring anything good out of this. And then the tomb is empty. I just don't think we capture the... I mean, you know, this cross before had covered with red because we're confessing our sins. Do you see they've turned to what? White. Do you realize our sin turns into our hallelujahs? Hallelujah. And there's no sin too great that God can't heal. Amen. Will you take God's word, turn to Matthew 28. One of the four direct descriptions of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Matthew 28. In verse one, now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. And he said, come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And and behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and, and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole them away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did what they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's word. The resurrection central to our faith. It is the cornerstone of our faith. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 14, if Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And of course we realize that you can't have a resurrection without first having a crucifixion. And there's a lesson there we're not gonna get into this morning, but about dying to self and all those kinds of things. But this morning we're really confronted with two realities and about the resurrection. In fact, two questions. And here's where I want to go this morning. Just two questions. The first is, did it really happen? This resurrection that we talk about, did it really happen? And second of all, what does it mean? You know, people are skeptical and for good reason. Let's face it, not too many people who are killed in a horrific way later come back to life. In fact, we only know of one. And you know, it's not good enough to simply say, well, you know, I believe because my mama told me it was true. That's not going to cut it for some skeptics. We need to be able to articulate, not only for ourselves, but for others, some basic reasons why this is believable. And what does it mean? Well... We often view things through the lens of history, and we call them facts, and we disassociate from those facts about how does this impact my life. For instance, did you know that people have walked on the moon? Did you know that? Now, I did a little research this past week, and according to a 2021 research study, 12% of people in America think it was fake. Another 17% think it was fake, but they're unsure. Imagine that 29% of people think the moon landing and walking was faked. And just imagine we let them vote. <laughs> <laughs> but what does it mean to you? What does it mean to you that some astronauts land on the moon, they walked and they came home? Well, really doesn't mean anything, does it? Doesn't change how you live. It is possible to believe in the resurrection of Jesus as a historical fact and it really doesn't change your life. And so we must address, if you believe this, how should it change your life? How should it transform your life? Knowing what you know, knowing what we know, how then should we live differently? Both individually, because it will affect every aspect of our lives. It has to and also corporately as a church. I mean, everything we think and do hinges on this reality that Christ died and rose again. You can't say he did it and then just go on living the same way, both in our lives and also in our church. You know, Paul addresses this question in Philippians. I mean, he lays out his credentials. He says, listen, you know, I'm this Pharisee above Pharisees. I did all the education, did everything. I'm really important. And then listen to what he says. Chapter three, verses seven and eight. But whatever gain I had, I mean, this is how the resurrection impacted him. I count it as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. And later in verse ten, he says this: that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. And may share in his sufferings. You know, we love the first part, don't we? We love the power. And we think in human terms of power, like the disciples did last week when we looked at that passage. The world thinks of power, and remember what Jesus said? Not so with you. And that's true for all of life. A resurrected life is countercultural, and we have to ask what does this mean? So the first question, did it really happen? Now, I have to confess this morning, I cannot do an exhaustive account. People are far more smarter and detailed than I am about this. There's books, there's podcasts you can listen to, and I encourage you to do that, and I encourage you to listen to reputable ones. But the evidence is overwhelming. Now, the one piece of literature that I found that's most comprehensive by N.T. Wright, it's called The Resurrection of the Son of God. I got a copy here. It's only 738 pages long. And the print is very, very small. But I got to tell you, the evidence is overwhelming. Now, I'm willing to loan this to somebody who really is a diehard, likes details, things like this. Afterwards, just come up to me and I'll loan it to you. But we're not going to do the whole thing this morning. We would be here till next week. Okay. But let me say this. First, these accounts of the resurrection were not written centuries after his death and resurrection. In fact, they were written soon after. They were written in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. I mean, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that he appeared to Cephas in the twelve, And then he says this in verse 6 of 15. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, the most of who are still alive. And then he goes on to say, he appeared to me on the road to Damascus. And Paul's like, listen, here's the story. You don't believe me. Go talk to them. Now, usually, if you're going to create a cover story, if you're going to create a fictitious story, a fake story, one usually waits till any or all witnesses are dead because they can't verify whether it's true or not. Secondly, now, again, I don't want you to get upset about this point. I'm just stating what culture is like, so just kind of chill. It's the existence of women as eyewitnesses. Now you say, what? Well, in their culture, female witnesses were not even allowed to testify into evidence about anything. Paternal society, women were not full-time citizens. They carried no credibility of what they saw and heard. And so you start reading this account, and the only reason to have women in the story as eyewitnesses is because it actually happened. If you were going to make it up, you would never put women in the story because they had no credibility. People say, oh, you know what? That can't be true because they're women. Okay? That's the way it was. I'm just the messenger. Don't get upset at me. Third, verse 17, it says, they seen him, they worshiped. And then there's three words, and somewhat. Doubt it. If you're making this up, why would you put that there? If you're talking about something that really happened, why would you say, you don't want people doubting this? Now, you and I know doubting is normal. I mean, some were like, okay, did I just see what I saw? You know, what did I have for breakfast? Doubters do not add credibility to the story. And why were they doubting? Now, think about it for a moment. Jesus had this resurrection body. And it was different. He could walk through walls. I mean, that would freak you out, wouldn't it? And then he could sit down and eat fish with them. And even though they saw this, they said to themselves, this can't happen. Also, and you can read some commentaries and some arguments about this. There are those that say this. Well, you know. We're talking about a time in people. We're talking about a time where people were superstitious, easy to deceive, gullible. You know, we're just so much smarter today. Now, C.S. Lewis calls this chronological snobbery. We believe that we are more advanced. We are smarter. We're better than the people in the days of Jesus because we think they were easily duped. Now, of course, this is all tied to the theory of evolution. We keep evolving. We're getting better and smarter. New term we use today is the word progressive because people back then weren't as smart as us. Now, I got some news for you, okay? And this is verifiable data research. People's IQs have not gotten any higher over centuries. There's no empirical evidence that we are smarter than the people in the days of Jesus. We just like to think we are. Here's a fourth reason. Lives that were changed. Did you notice at the end of the passage, he says, all authority is given to me. I want you to do what? Go make disciples. I want you uneducated fishermen from backwater towns. They were not the religious elites educated of their day. No, those religious educated people were paying off soldiers a lot of money to create a false narrative. He says, I want you to go out and change the world. Why? I mean, why did they listen? Why did they go out and serve prison terms? Some lost their families. Some lost their jobs. Some died for the cause. If Jesus could predict, here's why. If Jesus could predict, predict his death and resurrection and actually pull it off, then anything's impossible. Empty tomb, impossible. Go talk to 500 people. It is possible. Hoax. Would people die for a hoax? Would the church exist all this time till now, if it were a hoax. Now, having said that, next week we're going to have some witnesses, okay? We're having a baptismal service and 16 people are going on the water, okay? So if you want to find out and hear some stories about what God can do in people's lives, come next week because God is alive, well, and he's doing some incredible things. Think of it this way. Let me say several things about this. Think about history. Christ says, oh, authority. I sit at the right hand of God. I rule. I execute the will of the king, my father. So Jesus is telling us, you're the church and I am running things. Now, I know we get confused. We think the church is about us. But Jesus says, I have defeated evil and I will take care of all injustice. Some here, but everything in the future. And this is the cross. I rose again to make all this possible. And I want you to go. I want you to make a difference. You know, at his crucifixion, people stood at a distance. And they thought, I can't see any good God can bring out of this. He wasn't supposed to die. Now they see the incredible good that God brings into our evil-filled world. They see that God's plan was so much larger than theirs. That he was light in the midst of darkness. He was hope in hopeless situations. And you heard me say this last week. No matter who you talk with, everyone in this world desires the same thing. They really do. They want to be whole. They want to experience peace and value and purpose. They want to be loved for who they are. The difference is how we go about finding that. It's the world according to us or the world according to Christ. Now, when it's the world according to us, we think we're smarter than God. Got news for you. <laughs> you are not God. Amen? Amen? Okay, turn to the person next to you and say, I'm not God. I'm not now, if you have to say something back to them, say, neither are you, Okay. Okay. But the resurrection tells us there is difference between darkness and light. There's a difference between good and evil. And where you are right now, I mean, what are you saying to yourself? Are you going to take matters in your own hands? I'm going to fix this. I'm going to fix me. I'm going to fix people around me. Because I can't see God bringing any good out of this. Or are you willing to kneel at the foot of the cross and allow his death and resurrection to transform your life? There needs to be a crucifixion. Of self before there can be a resurrection. Amen. It's a child of God. Second, let me talk about the gospel for a moment. Go and make disciples, go and obey. And I have to ask myself the question what's the vision of the church? Now, last week, Jesus made it pretty clear it's to serve, not to be served, it's to give his life a ransom for many. And again, I know we still think the church is about us. I love the story in Luke 24 where there's some disciples on the road to Emmaus. It's a seven-mile walk, by the way. And they're talking about what happened. And while they're talking, Jesus joins them. Now, resurrected body, they do not recognize him. And you can almost to see the situation. I think God has a sense of humor because Jesus says, what's going on here? What are you talking about? And they said, where have you been? And they give a history lesson about Jesus who's standing right there. And so Jesus gives them a history lesson about the Old Testament. Seven-mile walk, long time. They finally get to the destination. They sit down. He breaks bread, and it says their eyes were opened. And they recognize Jesus. And then what happens? He (laughs) vanishes. It's like, man, that would just really freak me out. But can I ask you something this morning? What does Jesus want to open your eyes to? Now, the first thing is that you can have him in your life. That's why this whole deal and this death and resurrection. I know there's some of you that discount Jesus and you say things like, well, you don't know how bad I am. No, I don't, but he does. And guess what? His resurrection can overcome that. There's some saying, you know, I don't need him. I'm okay with my own. You need your eyes open because you're going to find yourself in places that you do not want to be. Some are skeptical. They still don't know what all this means. But, you know, we've been studying Galatians on Sunday morning about what it means to be set free. Freedom from, freedom to. And what he can do in you and what he can do through you. Let me talk about Christian community for a moment. You know, we have one word and it can be singular or plural. We say you. So we don't know whether they're talking about Many yous or just one you? Now, he says, you go, and I'm going to go with you. He's not talking about going on vacation, okay, with friends. He's on about mission. Called to be and do. And if you're from the South, the South gets this right. When they talk about you singular, what do they say? You. No, they say you. If they talk about you plural, they say what? You all, Okay. He says, you all go, okay, plural. This is community, and it's significant. Why? Because we need to see the mission we are on. We need to see Jesus Christ through the eyes of each other. And if we isolate, all we see is what we see. There's a lot of reasons for community. Safety, wisdom, support, truth, love, joy, peace. We're going to talk about the fruit of the Spirit. To be holy, restoration, unity. Unity. And when we start realizing that not so with you, okay, community, we read the verse in John 17. We're a different community than the world describes community. It says this, I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. It says it two times. It means we do ministry together. And this ministry is that unique and that powerful that the world says, you know what? I want some of that. I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in Life Together. He says, the physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. Remember, he was living in a day when most of the church was full of what we call nice church. They ignored the horror of what was their own country doing to people. They closed their eyes to the evil around them. And Bonhoeffer was part of a church that opened their eyes to the horrors of what was happening. And they served, trying to be like Jesus. And it cost some of them their life. This community is founded by Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. His death and resurrection formed the church. It is a gift. Now let me talk, and this is the fourth thing, about the end. (laughs) Got the history, gospel, community. Christ died, and that was not the end he rose again. He defeated death. Death is the ending of history as we know it. But there's something beyond this. Everything will be made right. You know, we love happily ever afters, don't we? And this is the happily ever after. I mean, one of my favorite books and movie is Lord of the Rings by Tolkien. And if you read it or watch it, You enter into the story, and it's filled with twists and turns, pain and evil. At the center is their little hobbit. You know, he's the least of these. He is the most—you would never pick him to be the core hero of the story. And so his burden is to carry a ring of power that destroys everyone that it comes into contact with. And he has to keep it away from the supreme evil one. And it's a treacherous journey. And there's only one place where it can be destroyed at the very heart of evil. And he has a community of people around him that go with him, especially one. Another hobbit. Never leaves his side, risks his life. And in the end, evil's destroyed, but not without a price. The cross, evil was defeated. And we know the end of the story, don't we? And we cannot imagine the new story that is and will be written. But here, in this passage, what do they do? They attempt to write an alternative story, huge assumptions based on, "Well, the tomb's empty, therefore the logical conclusion is, we can't prove it, but we can make sure our version makes it to public opinion. And you see the story costs them significant amount of money. We know this in the recovery community that false stories are costly. Secrets are deadly. Secrets make us sick. They take their toll. And what amazes me in this story is it came at the hands of religious rulers who prayed three times a day for the Messiah to come, but their expectations didn't meet Jesus. And they were well respected, and they were keepers of the truth. They were good moral people. Instead of coming to terms with the resurrection, they fabricate a story and paid people to spread it based on the empty tomb this power to deceive ourselves. We have to be right. So what kind of narratives are you creating that are alternatives to what Jesus said about I died and I rose again? Because you have to prove that you are right. Now every one of us has to come to terms with what does this mean? I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. We're going to be closing with a song. To me, It's a decision on who and what we will believe. you got to come to terms with Jesus Christ, okay? To us at GBC, we're the church. We're purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, came to an existence when he arose from the dead, and all authority is given to us. So the question is, what are we going to do with him? I don't know about you, but here's my heart. I want to be the church... That the only possible explanation for what is happening is that God has to be doing this. And again, I'm not talking about getting weird, okay? (laughs) I'm talking about transformed lives, like we're going to see next week. Evidence that God is at work. People finding freedom. Transformation is messy. Crucifying ourselves is full of pain and suffering. But I want to be the kind of church that Jesus speaks of when he tells Peter, not even the gates of hell will stop you. Why? Because you have my authority and I am sending you out. Yes, amen. What I long for is church Jesus' way. Yes. So think about those two questions. Did it really happen? You got to answer that. There's plenty of evidence that it did. And what does it mean for you and for us? Let me pray. Father God. Today we celebrate this resurrection, and I pray something that we just kind of take and and every year we get together and say, wow, this is great, but it's something that embeds in our minds and our hearts in a way that just transforms us and drives us, and we long to see you work in our life. We long to see you work in other people's lives. Forgive us for the times that we don't see that because we're just too caught up in our own selves. I thank you for these lives next week and we're just gonna celebrate what you're doing in their lives. I thank you for today that we celebrate that you died and rose again, that we might live, just not now, but for all eternity. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, because you alone are worthy and everyone said, Amen. Amen.